Question. If I were to ask you to name for me the four horsemen of the apocalypse, could you do it? So I think most of us are pretty much familiar with what the four horsemen are. Uh, they're part of the sixth chapter of the Revelation. Uh, the horsemen are part of a scene that Jesus unfolds to John while he is a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Now, in the first chapters of the Revelation, there, there are messages to each of seven churches located throughout Asia Minor. Chapter 6 begins to describe what these churches are to prepare for in the unfolding of history, or as I like to say it, in the unfolding of his story. The imagery of the chapter is stark. It, re it really is. Uh, John has been given a scroll. It's sealed with seven seals. And heaven and earth must be searched to discover the one worthy to open the seals. Well, none are worthy. And as John begins to weep over this fact, the lamb steps forward, Jesus himself. And the, the message in the chapter could not be clear. There, there's only one who holds our stories in his hand, and that one is Jesus. The one Paul tells us in the first chapter of Colossians made us for himself. As Jesus opens the first seal, it happens. Four horsemen, each terrifying in their own right, are summoned and they come forth. God is the summoner. They're given permission by the one who opens the scroll to ride throughout the earth, bringing a bit of hell to earth. I don't know if you remember the colors of the horses. They are in turn white, red, black, and pale green. Some people, some people say, well, that pale green is kind of a puke chlorine color. That's, that's great. Not a good image, but that's, that is the fourth horse. Now, I've always taught that the most deadly horse to come forth is actually the first one, the white one. What makes this horse so deadly is its outward appearance. We associate the color white with what? White? I mean, we wear white to, to signify what? Good. God. And this horse appears to be good. It looks like the church. It purports to be from God and for God, but in reality, this horse is not good at all. This horse does, in fact, represent the church, but not the church of Jesus Christ. This is the false church on earth, one that has the greatest capacity to deceive and in so doing to lead people to destruction. In fact, this past week, I couldn't help but think about this horse riding intently through the state that I live in, the state of Nebraska. So as I, I record this podcast, Nebraska state legislature is in session, considering a number of bills that hold life and death. One of the bills is actually titled called the Heartbeat Bill. And it's meant to protect the lives of the unborn. It seeks to protect children within the womb who have a heartbeat. The bill has drawn, and you would probably guess this, a lot of criticism from those who do not agree that a heartbeat equals life. Think about that. So o over the course of the last number of weeks, state news agencies have carried stories uh, from both supporters and those in opposition to the bill. Most center on the opinions of individuals within either the medical or political profession. This changed significantly within the appearance of a full-page ad in Sunday newspapers in every city across the state. It was a coordinated effort.
some 120 pastors in churches across the state signed their name to this full-page ad, declaring their opposition to protecting the lives of the unborn with a heartbeat and proclaiming their support for the extinguishing of lives. I want you to think about this. 121 pastors representing churches signed their name as though authorized by Jesus himself toward the act of extinguishing life. This is the white horse. Its danger lay in its appearance. It's a horse of deception that can only lead to destruction. I won't delve as deeply into the other three horses, but just remember with me, white, white of course, is the horse representing the false church. Red is the horse representing war and murder, a horse that can clearly be seen by the fact that there's already been more mass school shooting events in the current year than there have been days in the year. The black horse is the third horse, a horse representing an imbalance of the earth and its resources. Wow, we see that uh, every day. And then pale puke green. This horse brings famine and plague. Uh, Without question, we've seen this horse ride with fury over the last few years as a virus named COVID-19, part of the work of the green horse, has swept the globe. Four horses wreaking destruction and certainly visible among us today, which raises for me a question. Think about this with me. Where does atheism fit amongst the horses into the picture that John provides? So I don't know how familiar you are with the term new atheism, but if you haven't heard of it, let me tell you that like the revelation, this movement also has four horsemen. We all know, of course, atheism has been around a long time. When I was a kid growing up in Texas, our country's leading atheist, a woman named Madeline Marie O'Hare, lived just down the road from us. I grew up in San Antonio. She lived just down the road in Austin, Texas. In 1963, Madeline founded a group called American Atheists. And over the years, the group became politically active in its efforts to separate church and state. The group successfully maybe you remember this, sued the public school system in 1963 for including mandatory prayer time and the inclusion of Bible reading in our public schools. Some, in fact, credited O'Hare for single-handedly removing prayer from our schools across the country. To look at a list of her group's legal efforts is to recognize their hatred for all things Christian. O'Hare's group sued the White House in 1970 for the conduct of weekly religious services. She sued the Federal Communications Communication Commission in an effort to create equal television and radio time for atheists. In 1974, O'Hare's organization promoted the cause of removing images and reliefs depicting the Ten Commandments from public buildings along with any Christian symbols. Think about a manger scene at the public courthouse. Remove it, she said, during seasons like Christmas and Easter. What I remember most was my my dad, my father's anger at what he called that godless woman. No doubt her voice cut against the grain of American culture at that time. But that's since changed. Perhaps the greatest difference between the voices of what might be called the pioneering atheists in American culture, those of Madeline's day, and today, is the fact that culture itself has shifted. Unlike the 1970s, Christianity is not the majority voice in our country any longer. And as such, a new and perhaps more emboldened, I I would call them that, 
group of atheists has risen up. In 2006, the American journalist Gary Wolf gave our more modern atheists a name. He called their voice the voice of new atheism. More radical, new atheism is intent on criticizing, countering, and doing battle, legally and otherwise, with anything Christian. At its helm are a group of four individuals that are frequently, think about this, frequently referred to as, get this, the four horsemen of atheism. They're not red, black, chlorine, green, or white. But let me tell you that these horsemen are every bit as deadly as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I, w I would argue that they are in reality, simply part of what John foretells in the Revelation. So let me ask you this. Can you name for me the four horsemen of new atheism in our world today? Do you, do you know their names? If not, I, I want to give them to you. I'm going to guess many of you have heard of, of at least one or two of them. The four horsemen are Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. Of course, I would probably add to the list the name of the man we spoke about on our podcast last week, Bart Ehrman. Maybe he's the fifth horse. Over the last several years, I've actually tried to read a number of the books published by the horsemen. I'm a big believer in the old adage, know your enemy. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of the four horsemen themselves or, 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 or any of us would consider them our enemy. I'm not saying that. Each of them is a human being. They're created in the image of God and they're sought after by the very Spirit who they reject. I make it my personal aim to pray for anyone who rejects the Spirit. I believe that there does come a time when in so doing and rejecting the Spirit, a person's soul becomes in, irredeemable by virtue of committing the only sin the Bible calls the unforgivable sin, namely the rejection of the Holy Spirit. That said, I don't believe that the enemy has been at work. I do believe that the enemy has been at work through each of these men. If you haven't read them, I actually recommend looking at a couple of books. Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, The God Delusion, along with Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, I, I do. I recommend reading them. Not, not because I agree with either. I don't. But because I think it's important to know how the enemy works. To read these books is to recognize that if there's one target, and I, I don't know a better way to describe it than that, if there's one target that the enemy strikes at over and over and over again, it is the veracity or the infallibility of the scriptures. So the concept is simple. Disprove the reliability of the scriptures and you successfully undermine the whole of Christianity. And let me tell you that both the pioneer atheists as well as the new atheists in our culture today have been hard at work trying to undermine scripture. But they can't. Let me say this plainly. There's never been even one successful effort made to undermine the veracity and the historical accuracy of the scriptures to this very moment. There's been arguments made, there have been hypotheses formed, but the scriptures still stand as the single most reliable words recorded in history. And it is to this fact that Daniel chapter 11 attests. If you haven't listened to it, last week's podcast introduced for us the topic of the Bible's historical accuracy. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to suggest that there's a number of different approaches you can take to demonstrating the Bible's truthfulness. There, there are. But what we're, we're doing here represents one of those ways. Here, here's what I mean. Daniel 11 represents a moment in time wherein Jesus, in pre-incarnate form, lays out for Daniel a vision of history that is yet to unfold. In other words, Jesus comes to Daniel in this ecstasy, this vision, and says, in essence, Daniel... I'm going to show you what is getting ready to take place on earth in terms of the rise and fall of kingdoms over the next century and even beyond that to the resurrection. And I'm going to do so in a highly precise way. Now, here's what I find incredible about the words Jesus gives Daniel. They've stood the test of time. So, so listen to me. It, it, all an atheist has to do if they want to poke a hole in Christianity's balloon is to demonstrate that Jesus' words to Daniel are not historically accurate. All an atheist has to do is show that what Daniel records here in the Bible did not actually occur. But it did. Every single word that Jesus gives to Daniel does take place in the years that would follow his, that is Daniel's, death. So here's what I'd like to do today. I want to read for you another section of Jesus' words to Daniel. Then I want to show you how accurate they are historically. We're going to read Daniel 11 verses 2b through the end of verse 4. Before we do, I want to remind you that in this ecstasy, this vision, Jesus is using apocalyptic language. Remember what that means. Apocalyptic language is language that is symbolic. It is a form of genre or literature in which each symbol corresponds Make sure you get this corresponds with an actual historical event or person. So the language is symbolic, but the symbol points to a real person or a real event that will occur. I want to keep that in mind as I read. So we're going to read Daniel 11, 2b through the end of verse 4. As we do, as always, we're going to pray. Just, Lord, would you take these old words and, Lord, give us insight through them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the, here's the scripture, quote, when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with a great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. He will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So let me take you back to where we left off last week, and we'll come back up to speed on what these verses are pointing us to from a historical perspective. Last week, we looked at verse 1 and 2 of Daniel 11. In these verses, Jesus tells Daniel that following the rule of Darius in 550 BC, remember with me that Darius is at, at this time the, the vision of the first ruling king of Persia. At the time, it's assimilating the Babylonian Empire. He says, at that time, there will be a succession of four other kings. And this is exactly what happens. In 530 BC, Cambyses becomes the king of Persia. And in 522, Guamata, at least for a portion of the year, until he dies, becomes king. At which point, Darius I becomes king and rules until 486. The fourth king, though, is the strongest of all. His name is Xerxes, who becomes king of Persia in 486 BC and will rule until 465. As we read in verse 2b, 
is Xerxes who's being referred to. So what does verse 2b tell us Xerxes will accomplish? The scripture says, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So, again, all it takes is one. If a person can demonstrate that this scripture is historically inaccurate, the whole house falls. If it can be demonstrated that Xerxes did not stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece, then the Bible's not accurate. And if it's inaccurate here, then what's there to say that it's not inaccurate elsewhere? Bottom line is the question, was Jesus right? Is this what happened? Did Xerxes stir up the world against Greece? Once again, the pages of history say, well, yeah, yes, Jesus is accurate. What's spoken in verses 2b through 4 of Daniel 11 are exactly, exactly what happened historically. Remember this, we, we have at our disposal extra or non-biblical sources by which we're able to know what did happen historically during this period of time. And no surprise to myself, what happens? These sources confirm what scripture has to say. Here's what we know. In 486, Xerxes became the king of Persia. He amassed a great deal of wealth for his kingdom. Not only was Xerxes wealthy, but he was an adept political leader who was able to develop relationships with the rulers and leaders of surrounding states and territories. To this end, Xerxes developed a multinational army with his eye focused on capturing the territory belonging to Greece. This is why Jesus tells Daniel, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. He did. Interestingly, in order to capture Greece, Xerxes had to broach a canal through the peninsula of Mount Athos, not an easy feat. And to do so, he created and utilized two, I call them shark tank type pontoon bridges. I mean, the builders of these bridges could have, could have sold their patent on shark tank for a big dollar. Now, this allowed his troops to cross the Hellespont River. Initially, Xerxes was successful against the Greeks, given two variables. First, the size of his army, numbering one million troops. Of these, however, variable two, were his elite fighting forces. You know what they were called? This is fun. They were called the Immortals. And no, this is not a comic book. This is history. This fighting force, the Immortals numbered 10,000. This elite team is what gave Xerxes an edge over the Greeks. Now, it was at the Battle of Thermopylae that Xerxes engaged the Greeks in all-out combat. You probably will remember this battle. It's become famous. In fact, it was the subject of a movie titled 300 in the year 1998. Remember, the film featured Gerard Butler as the leader of the Greek or Spartan forces. Long live Sparta. Of course, the movie's a bit of an exaggeration. There were more than 300 Spartans or Greeks who fought against Xerxes' forces. The actual number was probably about 7,000. But the odds were against him. 300,000 Persian multinationals versus 7,000 Spartans. So you know who won the battle. Of course, be careful with your answer. Of course, the Persians overcame the Spartans. They better have. You don't take 300,000 in a battle against 7,000 and walk out defeated. Xerxes won the battle, but please hear this. He did not win the war. The Battle of Thermopylae is perhaps best understood as the Battle of the Alamo of its time. Xerxes won the battle, but the battle would cost him the war. 
Ultimately, it was, just as Jesus proclaims to Daniel, another Greek king who would rise up and defeat a now staggered Persian force. And the name of that king, the Greek king that would in 334 topple the Persian Empire, just as Jesus said, his name was Alexander the Great. Listen to Jesus' words again. Jesus tells Daniel that following Xerxes, quote, a mighty king would arise with great power, a king that would do as he pleased. And do you know what? Alexander the Great did exactly as he pleased. Again, accurate to history. The Bible is accurate to history in its every detail. What I want you to see here, again, is the role that Daniel 11 plays in answering the question, is the Bible a historically accurate book? The chapter is chalked full of Jesus' descriptions to Daniel of what would occur in the centuries following his death, centuries that would lead up to the entrance of Jesus into our world as the incarnate Son of God. If Jesus' words, this scripture, could be proven wrong at any point, it would be significant in the assault made by atheists and others against Christianity and specifically the Bible. However, what we find is the incredible accuracy of these scriptures. I don't know about for you, but for me, this brings an incredible sense of peace. Not, not that we have to defend the scriptures through our own doing. God, God's capable of that. But just in knowing how accurate the Bible is down to its last historical detail. Now, I want to address this one more time through the lens of archaeology in our next session, prior to introducing a character who Jesus tells Daniel will come, a character who foreshadows the Antichrist, a character named Antiochus, Epiphanes IV. Next week, I'm going to be out of town, so we'll be off for the week. We'll come back to this scripture and move forward. I do, I want to thank you again. So very much uh, encourages me for listening to and being part of this broadcast. You're a great blessing to me. I'm going to keep you in my prayers. I do. I stop. I pray for all of you. And I'm going to ask the same in return. Just please pray. I guess you uh, give you blessings on the week ahead. And as always, until next time, have a God-sized week. <music>